0: welcome to day two cloud today we are having an interesting discussion about how you yes you could potentially become an sre we talk all about what it means to be an sre what does the interview process look like what sort of skills do you need to have and our guest amin astani really walks us through the entire thing ethan what jumped out to you in the conversation
1: well, he was big on the technical skills that you need. He talks a lot about coding. We get into operating systems and operating system levels and some bits about infrastructure and networking and so on. But that's not all that the role is about. He also emphasizes team and working within team having emotional intelligence in these kind of things too. He really described a very interesting person that can successfully fulfill the role of SRE. I don't think it's for everybody, but I think for the right person, there'd be no other job like it, Ned.
0: Absolutely. So enjoy this conversation with Amin Astani, the founder of ChertoMoto. Well, Amin, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. And let's start with a basic question. Uh, You're a freelance consultant in the world of SRE and DevOps, but I'm sure you didn't start there. So whats what you're doing today entail, and how did you end up doing it?
2: Hey, Ned, it's good to be here. Uh, So yeah, being a consultant, um, it requires me to wear many hats. Uh, Sometimes I need to be a fractional manager to provide direction to teams on how to do SRE and DevOps. And at other times, I need to be an individual contributor and get my hands dirty and solve problems using software or infrastructure tools. Um, I've even been called upon to interview senior engineering candidates, which is a really fun experience. But taking a step back, how did I get started doing this? I was affected by Meta's first round of layoffs last November. Mm -hmm. And I made my post on LinkedIn announcing that, yep, this happened. And something really interesting happened. Several of my former work colleagues from a previous job immediately reached out and said, hey, do you freelance? we have some interesting <laughs> problems that we would love for you to solve which was you know heartening and encouraging but you know taking a couple months off i was taking a step back looking at my career and noticed that the way that i treated sre and the way that i ran teams is very much like a consultancy i would lend an engineer's time and experience to engineering teams towards targeted missions and goals you know towards operational responsibility so i put two and two together and i realized i'm a consultant i should do consulting
0: Gotcha. Okay. And so uh your company, Certo Moto was born. What's the genesis behind the name of the company? I'm just curious. Oh,
2: it's a it's a great, it's a great name. So it's Latin, certo moto. It means certain way. Uh hmm. it's kind of like a little joke to myself. There's a certain way that I tend to do things. It was really funny. Like uh I I put together a spreadsheet and I had a bunch of Proposed names, and I also had to make sure there was a you know a .io domain uh, available for it, and a few <laughs> other things. Yeah. I asked some of my friends. I made a little poll, and I had a few options, and Chateau jumped out. One of my friends said it sounds like a company that if you walk into the office, there's like you know leather office furniture. It, it evoked a <laughs> certain you know je ne sais quoi, so I went with Chateau on that basis. Gotcha.
1: So we've been talking about site reliability engineering. That's the, the premise of the show is how to become an SRE. Maybe you should define that for us. I mean,
2: yeah, we'll do. So there's a great description from the originator of SRE, Ben Trainer Schloss, and it's in a sentence, and I love it so much. He said that SRE is what happens when you ask a software engineer to design an operations team. <laughs> Okay. So in practice, what that means, like, okay, if I'm an SRE, what does that mean? It means that I am a software engineer and I am using that skill towards the task of operating a service. Um, And that can be towards aspects of ops like observability, incident response, capacity planning, change management, and so on. But it's a software engineering role. It's not
1: I'm a software engineer and I want to wrestle infrastructure to do what I want it to do because I was a software engineer. It's I'm a software engineer. I have a certain set of skills and I'm going to apply
2: those skills to infrastructure engineering. I think it's a pretty reasonable way of going about it. I mean, there, there needs to be a, an intrinsic drive to want to do this. Like why, why be an, an SRE if you didn't care about the operational aspects of services? If not, you can just write features.
0: Right. So often we hear that the mantra of developers don't care about infrastructure. They don't want to know. They don't want to touch it. So to a certain degree, you're, you're pointing at a special type of developer or software engineer who is actually interested in infrastructure and operations and how all that stuff works.
2: Correct. And there, there's another aspect to this as well. Uh, I think I said this recently to someone, you have to be kind of a propagandist, as well. So it's not about you can't you can't just do SRE by yourself in the corner and keep services running because the moment that you leave the team, things go right back to the way they were before. So you have to work with your software engineering peers and show them and teach them so that way they pick up some of your skills. So that way mm-hmm. when you move on to the next opportunity, the next team, all of that organizational knowledge remains and the service continues to be operated in a better way. So there's a lot of communication and persuasion um, involved in the role. It's not just the, you know, the computer science and the, and the systems knowledge. Right. So if
1: I'm a systems administrator today, or I'm an infrastructure engineer of some kind today, can I just rebrand myself in SRE because pretty much it's the same thing? Or is SRE actually a distinct role?
2: They are not the same. System administrator and site reliability engineer, they're not the same. And there's a primary differentiator, which is the use of engineering. They're writing code. The the first rule of SRE uh that was presented at like the Usenix conference in 2014 by Ben Trainer Schloss when he was describing SRE. Rule number one, hire only coders. As a system administrator, there isn't this like explicit expectation that you're going to be coding, but in SRE, you definitely are. So that's the big difference between those two roles. It's it's a coding forward role.
1: So qualify what you mean by coding. Like I'm coding in Go, I'm coding in Python. That kind of coding, or is it like I'm using I'm, I'm using tools that can consume infrastructure as code.
2: No, I mean, I mean programming languages. So like those examples, those would be valid um, languages that an SRE would need to learn. So I think people, when they think about SRE, okay, yes, I can do infrastructure as code. I can use, you know, Puppet or Chef or Terraform or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that isn't going to enable you to automate away, you know, the full class of manual tasks that can be involved in operating a service. Configuration management is only one class of manual effort that needs to be automated away. So you need to learn a programming language. I mean, scripting languages like the ones you mentioned are, are perfectly reasonable for this space.
0: I think you just made a key distinction here for me, which is SRE is all about automating all of the things. And the existing tool sets out there may not, out of the box, be able to automate the thing you want. So in order to build the larger automation framework and also fill in those gaps, you need the software development chops to go in and hack something together in whatever language makes sense for you.
2: I think that is the correct insight. I mean, the SRE end game, the SRE dream is to have a service that operates itself. It patches itself. It auto-remediates when things go wrong. You don't have to touch it and it, it stays up you know, through thick and thin. So yes, I think that makes a lot of sense. Gotcha. But again, it is still infrastructure
1: focused. Is that fair to say?
2: I wouldn't necessarily say infrastructure. I think, I think we can take a step back and look at, I I talk about this a lot, the concept of operational responsibilities. So Hmm. there are certain things that you have to practice in order for your product to stay up and be fast and be performant and be secure. So there are activities that necessary does that are pertinent to observability, again, incident response, change management, even security. That is the holistic view around service ownership. It's not just the infrastructure. Infrastructure, yes, is important, but there are certain ways that you are measuring and, and applying change in the infrastructure that makes a successfully running service.
1: You, you just nailed it together for me. It's it's a different focus. When you come from a historical sysadmin infrastructure engineering background, you're very focused on some aspect of infrastructure. You're a security engineer, you're a network engineer, you're a storage engineer, something like that. You're describing a, a product or service that you are focused on and all of the things around that that support the enabling and running and performance and security and the rest of that service. So you were product-focused. You were thinking in those terms and not infrastructure. All of a sudden, infrastructure, as you just described, becomes one part of what it needs for that product to be delivered. But it is only one thing. And an SRE is focused on all the other things too.
2: 100%. And I think a great way to to think about that, like a practical use case, is SREs talk about service-level objectives a lot. Um, That's like a very hot term. But the reason why it's so you know effective in this context is that SLOs are expressed in terms of what the customer can observe. So right from the start we're having conversations about what does the customer think about the service being up? Like what is their and like their definition of the, of the service being, you know, fast and performant and we start there. We're not thinking about everything else under the surface, we're thinking about the customer experience first
0: and then we use our skills and expertise to make those expectations be true. Okay, okay. So I want to zoom out a little bit and and kind of stitch together where someone who's in an SRE role fits into a larger sort of business process and culture uh, cuz you know you hear a lot about DevOps and DevOps isn't a position, it's not a title, it's it's a culture and a way of doing things. Where does SRE fit into that DevOps culture and process? A very good question.
2: Yeah. Um I think if I said this in code, um SRE extends DevOps it's an implementation of, of DevOps like of course we have particular bias towards you know those operational responsibilities that I was mentioning earlier rather than the classic activities that when 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 people invoke the word DevOps they're thinking like oh yeah CI CD shifting left SREs tend to focus on those aspects instead however there's significant overlap between DevOps and SRE practices And for me, like in a day-to-day, I think that SREs also have to be good communicators. They also have to be good collaborators and operate in a way where work can be done cross-functionally.
1: We recently recorded a show about platform engineering. It's a topic that's come up more and more, building in uh, ITPs, internal development portals, and these kind of things. How would you relate the work of an SRE to platform engineering?
2: I think that platform engineering is like the SRE late game. I know you're looking quizzically at me. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll describe I'll describe a really a really like quick roadmap. So imagine you're an SRE manager. You're in a company and they're still they're still trying to find their feet in terms of reliability. You're going out across all of the engineering teams and you're saying, "Hey, you should be on call. You should have a process when you're shipping code. You should monitor. You should know what it means to be up. You should be responding when things are going wrong. You should handle incidents blamelessly." So. Okay, eventually you end up in a place where a bunch of teams are starting to put together all of those processes around how to best operate the services. But each team has their own process, meaning engineers can't transfer themselves from one team to the other easily because the context required to pick up a new team is going to be significant. Platform engineering, the reason why I say I think it is the SRE endgame is that you're now creating an infrastructure service that is common across all engineering teams. And the way that you build and operate one service is the same you build and operate another, which reduces an immense amount of toil, right? So that's why I say it's 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 the SRE end game because you've built one thing that is opinionated about what the business needs. All the engineers are using it, and they're mm-hmm. getting all of their non-functional requirements for mostly free.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Like if the SRE had their druthers, there would be a standardized way to do things. People wouldn't color outside the lines, and they could take more lunch breaks because. People would stop breaking stuff all the time because they're like, well, I'm special and I don't need to do it that way.
2: (laughs) I think that's correct. In the beginning, I think many teams are going to pick their specific tools because it works for them. But again, the amount of organizational knowledge and single points of failure in, in our brains, not even in our technology, that has to be maintained in order for a service to continue running and to have the processes work. It, it just grows exponentially for every team that you add. So by saying, "Okay, we're going to use this underlying technology, we're going to use this storage engine, we're going to use this container runtime system, we're going to use this monitoring, and everyone's going to use it," it instantly just reduces the the cost of
0: doing business. Gotcha. Okay, so I think I think we've got a pretty firm grounding now around what SRE is, how it fits into the larger context and culture. So I'm intrigued. I might want to try to, you know, get into one of these SRE roles. What type of paths have you seen folks follow to get into that role? Because you said they got to have, you know, development or at least software experience in writing code. So does that mean it's only for developers or have you seen people follow other paths into the SRE role?
2: Yeah, there are definitely two paths. So I started more on the system side and yeah i i got a computer science degree and you know i i wrote code but you know over time i started to use that skill more and more towards making life easier for ourselves and and for our customers through automation so that's one route that's pretty common like i already had the linux chops the systems chops networking you know and you just are learning to code more and more to solve mm-hmm. the problems you have very common Developer to SRE, uh, that's that's definitely doable too. I think what ends up happening is that they they're going to have to learn a bit more about things like the CLI and what's happening underneath the code that they're writing. I think that's probably one of the biggest transitions for for software devs to SRE or operations related stuff. They actually have to understand what their code is doing on the system in terms of resources (laughs) that it's consuming and how it's interacting with the operating system. Oh, there's an operating system oh, there's file permissions. Right. And, and they they have to yeah. begin to grok these things so that way they can answer questions around performance and you know think about security and, and all of those non-functional
0: requirements you mentioned earlier. So it almost sounds like if you come from more of a sysadmin or an infrastructure engineer background, the big hump you got to get over is learning how to code. Yep. Whereas if you're coming from that developer background, I feel like it's a bigger ask that you need to learn all this infrastructure stuff that took me, you know, five, 10 years to learn just from being immersed in it. I'm now asking somebody else to kind of pick up on all this information and understand it really quickly in these complicated systems. So I feel like it would be a hard learning to code is not as hard as learning everything there is to know about the different infrastructure disciplines. At least maybe I'm giving uh too much preference to, to infrastructure. I'm not sure. <laughs>
2: Or or you're just giving a huge boost to my ego. Uh, I, either either or, right? <laughs> um, yeah, that feels really good to hear. Um, I, I I guess that's true. So if I were a software engineer and I wanted to to break out into this brave world of SRE, like how would I how would I go about it? I mean, believe it or not, a lot of the the computer science books that we're talking about like operating systems and understanding, like, this is what a process is. And this is how a process is scheduled. And, you know, all of those fundamentals, like things like system calls, that stuff's actually really useful. Mm. And if you're able to, you know, go through some of that material, there's a lot of material online or in books that you can just read and kind of get into. If you get that, then you have a foundation that everything else builds on top upon. It's like, okay, I can run a Linux system. I can go on the CLI and start typing commands and I understand what's happening. So yes, it is progressive, but I, I think learning the, the the foundations, there's like a, a very simple place to go, which is like operating systems design and understanding what this foundation is all about. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> that all feels uh, more computer science-y than, uh, than I was anticipating in that when you go down the systems administration route, like many of us did, the training we got tended to be product or platform specific. Like way back in the day, I went to Novell school and I took Novell training. Uh I didn't get a lot of computer science training in that course of study. It was months worth of study through lots of the big red books that Novell published at the time. And they taught some fundamentals about networking and how computer systems work, memory and CPU and all that. But most of it was targeted around... You've got Novell loaded and now it's doing file and print services. And how do you make those sing and dance and do their thing? The same thing with a lot of other training programs. They tend to be published by a vendor, they're product specific, and they're teaching you almost processes and procedures as opposed to concepts you do get some of those concepts along the way you can't help it but it's not like the the theory that you learn in a pure computer science program so maybe we should take a step back i mean if i want to be a good sre you you've hinted at you know or, or said things about operating systems and uh, other related skills what all do i need to have my head around to be a a good sre
2: if i was starting from scratch Coding we already mentioned and spoke to pretty clearly so we'll put that down for a while. Well,
1: okay, okay, coding, but actually let me dig into that for just for a minute. Yeah. So coding, I got to pick a language or two: Python, GoLang, whatever is going to be useful for me in my in, sure. in, in my work. Okay. Um, but does that also mean coding on a team where I'm doing version control and checking things in and out of uh, Git and, and and a lot of the ancillary tools that kind of go along with coding, as opposed to the way many of us started with coding is, man, you can throw code into, uh, you know, notepad and, you know, make it work.
2: You've made a very, very good point. And I, I, I think it's good to highlight here. So writing software is a social exercise. You have to be able to collaborate with others. You have to play nice with others. You need to write code that has comments. It needs to be readable by other people. There should be tests, right? So that when other people touch it, when other people look at it, they can understand it and they're able to contribute to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is like a social aspect of writing software that I think SREs very much particularly need to you know, get experience in and understand because if we're trying to persuade others to learn new things, we need to use those, those, those practices
1: we got to write that code with the expectation other people are going to be looking at using this code as well. That's right. Your point is okay. Okay.
2: Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's the first bit. The second bit is systems knowledge, right? So if I, if I were to break into it like today and I wanted to start, I think the easiest way would be find yourself a Linux distribution, install it on your laptop Mm -hmm. and get familiar with the CLI and be inquisitive and start, Learning, what are all these tools? Why do I need to use them? What is happening under the surface? What are these metrics about? You're saying Linux. You've said Linux
1: several times, and Linux is certainly pretty easy to get into. Okay. But a lot of folks that are listening to this, maybe they've got Windows back, or maybe they're deep Windows nerds. Is that similarly adequate, or, or is Linux really the place I need to be?
2: I am showing my bias a little bit, and I'll be open about that. I have not operated Windows systems in production. So there might be someone in in your listenership right now that's like, hey, you really can do that. So maybe that's true. I I think I'm 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 speaking about Linux because yes, it's a very open community. It is open source. You're able to look under the hood and see what's going on. You can make improvements to it. There's a lot of forums and resources out there and how to learn it, right? So I think that's the reason why I I, I lean towards Linux on that basis.
1: Well, from a practical standpoint as an SRE, uh, would I assume,
2: is Linux knowledge assumed? Yes, considering most, like um, almost all HPC grids are going to be running Linux. I mean, Meta, when I worked there. Everything was Linux when I worked at Acquia, Everything was Linux. So if you're if you're running like production systems that are that are you know of high scale, it is very 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 likely that Linux is what's happening under the hood. So coding, operating system knowledge, uh,
1: Linux especially, and and what next?
2: Well, I think we need to start talking about. I, I know I know the term isn't is isn't, isn't is kind of frowned upon. Um, soft skills, interpersonal skills. I think mm. we need to talk a bit about those, right? Because as I as I mentioned, writing software is a social exercise. So I'll, I'll make this statement. As an SRE, you are not going to be able to be productive and get your work done and be evaluated successfully unless you persuade members of your team to join you on your quest, right? So on that basis, you're going to have to learn how to communicate and collaborate with others in a way that, has them like you and want to help you. Um, so there's a few things that i want to I want to go over with with you all about this. So, like number one is emotional intelligence. Now, what I mean about emotional intelligence is your ability to identify and own your own emotions as well as being able to sense and understand the emotions of other people. So when you're communicating with others, it's really important that you're paying attention to not the the verbal content that they are saying, the informational content, but also the emotional content. Are they stressed out? Are they resentful? <laughs> yes. Right. And all of those things are, but as a mentor of mine once said, uh, emotions are information. So mm. if you are talking to someone and you see those signals coming up in your head, when you're communicating with them, that is context. That is information that you can then use to understand things like motive or, or incentives, receptivity to your ideas. Um, do they need help, but don't know how to speak out? To ask for it. Like all of that information is really, really important. So, like having emotional intelligence allows you to see what's happening you know, between the lines and be able to ask questions, be inquisitive, and even make decisions or take actions that can, that can help people and have them be like, hey, this person's really cool. I, I want to work with them and help them on the rest of everything. So, that's the first thing. The next bit is assertiveness. So, mm-hmm. as, as an SRE, we, we govern our actions with data. Um, one, of, one of the mantras that I learned from Meta when I was there was focused on impact, meaning you should be able to say, if I do X, Y, Z, there is a monetary or time impact of the change that I'm making. So how does that relate to assertiveness? Well, if you have that data, you're then able to go with confidence in front of a group of people or within your team and say, I think we should do these things. And this is the reason why we should. Here's the justification for it. And here's the risk that if we you don't, you're not going to be able to drive change by being quiet. As an SRE, you're on the team to drive change to, because mm-hmm. the situation that is around you is not optimal. You're there for a reason. So you need to speak up, right? And then, and then the third business skill is, for, for, for me is resilience. So again, if you're an SRE and you're joining a team, you are there for a reason. There is something systemically wrong or there is a challenge that you're needing to overcome. Very common challenges that you will see as an SRE is there's a product launch coming up it's very stressful because there's like a deadline or something, or there's a lot of toil or unplanned work in the form of outages that is happening. So you being resilient allows you to be able to step into the fire a little bit, keep it cool and be able to, you know, bring change in and, in, in, in peace to a situation that isn't otherwise. I'm, I'm not saying that, Hey, because you're an SRE, you should throw yourself into a toxic work environment. That is not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is that you have a certain level of tolerance for the things that are gonna commonly happen that are dysfunctional on a software engineering team.
1: One of the themes that I'm pulling out here from the way you view the SRE role is the interaction you have with other people. You mentioned it in coding, coding is social. You've mentioned it here, um, soft skills, business skills, that you've got to be able to interact effectively with other people because you're working in a team context. Now, for people that come from a sysadmin or infrastructure engineering pure background, a lot of us worked, we worked on teams, but we had a lot of solo work that we did uh, along the way or things that we had as our our pet systems that we were uniquely, typically uniquely responsible for. Do you not have that as an SRE? Or is there also work that's yours that, yeah, you're in a
2: team context, but um, you're also doing your own thing? So my experience at Meta is... You kind of take over as a subject matter expert of an aspect of the system. So sure, you have your fiefdom uh, of sorts. You know, for me, for me, I, w- I was very much focused on observability and incident response. So I made sure that we had you know SLOs and dashboards that were very understandable. And you know, I was also writing tools for load testing and, and, and those sorts of things. But all of that being said, it is your responsibility to document that work. Socialize that work. Get others to use the tools and the technology that you built. Because again, the nature of SRE work is you go where you're sent. So if there is a team that's having a lot of problems, you're going to go on that team and you're going to help them out. But when they're stable, you might move to a different team. So to prevent, you know, the state of that team from degrading, you have to socialize your work with others. So that way they can pick up where you left off. I I don't think an SRE engagement, I call them engagements. I know I'm like, consultant. Once again, it's very consultant speak. Yeah. Yeah. The success criteria of SRE engagement is that you're able to go on vacation for like three months and stuff continues to run while you're gone. Mm. If you've done that, then you know, your job is finished and you can move
0: on to the next team. That is the dream to actually train the people that you work with to to take the things that you're doing and continue doing them in your absence and understand Mm -hmm. not just the how, but the why and how to maintain it going forward. And uh, you mentioned documentation. That's a big, big area of mine that I just I tried to do every time I did a consulting engagement was to leave a nice corpus of documentation that explained how to maintain the system after I had, you know, concluded my portion of the engagement. That seemed to that seemed to help a lot, and especially in terms of people asking me to come back and do future engagements for other things. They'd be like, yeah. I want those docs.
2: <laughs> that's that's it. That's it. Another ephemeral build artifact is the culture. How did the culture of the team change, you know, hmm. due to your presence? Like what's the quote culture each strategy for breakfast? Like what I mean by that is if everyone has a common and shared set of values, when when after you leave, those values are going to be in their head and it's going to it's going to govern future decision making. Right? So like yes, documentation is very very important. But you also you have to instill into the hearts and minds of your team that documentation is important, maintaining documentation is important, consulting it when changing production is important. So (laughs) culture is a femoral build artifact. It's not something you can you can touch, but it is very very important.
0: All right. So let's say I'm ready to apply for an SRE role, and you as a former hiring manager, you probably have some things in your mind of what you're looking for in a potential candidate and it usually starts with the resume right you're you're going right. to be looking through resumes or you're going to have someone who's doing the initial filtering and then they're sending a resume pile up to you what's something that catches your eye on a resume or what's something that you definitely should avoid putting on your resume that's just going to turn off the hiring manager and go nope that person is is not for us
2: okay yeah this is this is a good question so i'll 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 pick Two things. The the thing that if I see it, I'm gonna be excited and the thing if I see it, I'm 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 gonna feel a bit lukewarm about it. So okay. <laughs> it is it is very, very rare to see a candidate list a system call tracer like S trace as a tool listed on their resume. I know I'm dropping a big secret. Now, why am I saying <laughs> this? Because if you understand how a system call tracers work, you are basically signaling that you understand operating systems. Pretty low to you know the level where you understand the interaction between a process and the o s beneath it. It's basically like a pip on your collar. I know what you're about because <laughs> you know you 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 do this now. granted, if someone does put you know something like s trace on their resume, I am going to ask them every question I have <laughs> in my in my head about it to verify <laughs> that. You're not going to be able to walk easily through my door if you use that tool. But if you if you make it through, you will impress me. That's very very rare, mm-hmm. very very rare. But the lukewarm bit, like if I see that, I, I'm not going to be super excited. Now I understand I'm I'm biased. If I see a list of higher level tools, UI tools, web tools, and not a whole lot of like down in the stack CLI type stuff. Like that mm-hmm. smells to me like click ops, right? Which it which is which is a, which is a <laughs> I I yeah I don't I don't I don't I don't want to uh, be be mean or anything. But what I mean by that is, there has been because of all of the cloud tools out there that people will do system administration work just by going in the UI and just clicking and setting everything up, which mm-hmm. is a signal that you're you're not automating the task. Away. So that's one aspect. And then another aspect is if you're, let's say, using, you know, just Grafana or just Datadog, sometimes those tools will lie to you because time series will roll up the further back that the data is. And sometimes during incidents, you sometimes have to jump on a server, run, you know, top or Dstat or any of those tools and and see what the spikes are. So if you are limited to, you know, what a SaaS can give you in terms of metrics. That tells me that during a crisis, if those metrics aren't already present, you're not going to be able to find what it is that you need to look for. So I, I hope that answers your question about what red flag, if it is one. Um, but that that's kind of the thing that I tend to look for and watch out for.
0: Right, right. It, it's someone who... There's nothing necessarily wrong with a ClickOps process if you're in a smaller environment where you don't yeah. necessarily need to automate all that stuff away. And right. that person could eventually progress into using these more um, low-level tools to manage things. They're just not there yet. And so mm-hmm. you would you would want them to work on those things before they apply for that SRE role.
2: I, I, th- I think that's correct. I know I've been making several hot takes throughout this episode. I hope your <laughs> listeners are enjoying this conversation. So I, I think that SRE... Is like a medium level to senior role. You're gonna need some experience in either an, like an operations type position or a software dev position before you specialize into, mm-hmm. into SRA. You 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 need to have seen some stuff, you know, <laughs> before you 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 take on a role like this because it is very broad. It's it's right. asking a lot of the candidate. Mm-hmm. How do you get a read
1: on their personality, their team fit since this is a social sort of a job, team oriented job? How do you kind of weed through that aspect in an interview?
2: Again, put put your emotional intelligence hat on and really pay attention to the conversation. Are you seeing, you know, like a positive affect, a positive attitude, some humility, excitement? You know, there's some emotional signals that you'll get, you know, when interacting with someone that's going to give you a read on you know, how are they going to interact with others in a, in a job setting? I'm not going to say use your gut, but I, because I think it's important to gather information, but I would definitely be taking note in a behavioral interview, particularly, where they're demonstrating behavior that shows that they are agreeable yet is willing to speak up for things that they believe in. You know, that I think that's the that that's the 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 balance, right? Like you want to be able to be in a group of people and have people think that you are pleasant and 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 good to work with, but at the same time, you're not a pushover. Mm -hmm. Right. Because SREs for me are leaders. Like they are, they are, you know, spreading the gospel. In order to do, do that, they have to be willing to say things that people disagree with at times
0: right and and do it in a way that's respectful as well
2: yes yeah you're not being adversarial but you, you but you're saying hey there you know i see you're doing it this way uh, there there is fortunately a better way and and you know i can help you and you get this benefit out of it like you're selling it in many ways sres have to have a sales and marketing you know attitude a little <laughs> bit in terms of how they're interacting with people because you are you are introducing new concepts to them You know, especially for SWEs, like SWEs are thinking about, yep, I am writing code, I am producing features. Uh, And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, that's how businesses are built. But you're now saying, hey, did you know that if you use this particular algorithm or this particular block of code, it takes three times as long to run? Let's, Let's work on that together.
1: Okay. So given two candidates that you've interviewed, one is a little weaker in the skill set, but pretty strong a personality. You think they'd get along with the team well, has the ability to stand up for themselves, et cetera. All those skills that you value versus the second candidate who's off the charts with skills, but personality-wise, you know, you're not sure how they're going to get along with the team. Who do you pick?
2: The former. 100% Mm. every time. Do not underestimate the disruptive power of a difficult personality in your team dynamics, because you have to understand as a manager, your responsibility is to the collective output of your entire team. If you go and bring in a rock star, quote unquote, into your team that, you know, has is very opinionated and does everything their way and doesn't play nice, what you end up with is the collective output of your team is now reduced to that one person because no one else is going to be able to contribute at hundred percent with their presence. Mm-hmm. um in many ways though, though those types of people those types of engineers can be a net negative you can have attrition
1: wow wow wow
2: right so hmm. i would always always choose the less technically experienced but more agreeable personality rather than its inverse
1: my take on that i've hired a bunch of people over time and my take has been i'll take that good personality and fewer skills you know maybe not as skilled on the on the assumption that I hadn't thought about it uh, I mean from your perspective of you could detract from other members of the team and they not be able might not be able to work at 100 I'd never thought about that before that's powerful but my thought was the person who lacks some skills can probably learn those skills and so I would make sure, I would test their potential in the interview you are you can learn right tell, t- tell me how you learn things mm-hmm. and uh and sometimes you you gamble a little bit with that but uh, but almost always paid off in that, boy, if you can keep that team dynamic strong, you get someone who fits in the team. Everybody likes working with this person. Oh, that's such a big win and can be hard to find in tech. 100%. Yeah, that's very, very true. That's very, very true.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think there are a lot of, of of people that are trying to break into the industry. And if they're bringing in a good attitude and a willingness to learn, they can probably go pretty far.
0: Yeah, that's that was my experience as well. Hiring folks is the ones who were eager to learn and easy to get along with ended up being the much better hire versus the one who had all the skills, but they're that you know, crusty old sysadmin who just, just wanted to do it his way and, or the highway. And, and that just never meshed well, uh, especially in a high-functioning team. So we, we kind of danced around the interview uh, idea a little bit, but what would the typical interview process look like? Is it mm-hmm. going to be you know, whiteboarding a sorting algorithm? And am I going to be uh, doing multiple rounds of interviews? and going to be taking home projects? Like, what should I expect uh, as a potential candidate in that interview process? Sure. So I'm going
2: to preface this with, I've had a lot of experience, you know, conducting interviews for Meta. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, my answer I'm going to provide is going to be along those lines. And to your original question, am I going to be like on a marker board doing algorithmic <laughs> problems. Um, not not unless you're Google, I think, is really the answer to that question. So, hmm. you know, post-COVID, I, I wonder if teams are going back to the whole marker board thing, especially mm-hmm. in light of, of, you know, recent tools like CoderPad that makes it really, you know, reasonably easy to conduct an interview remotely. But in terms of the SRE coding interview itself, you usually aren't expected to, you know, algorithmically. What you do need to do, however, is the basics. Like, do I code defensively? Can I do file IO? If I'm given a file, can I open it up? And can I read from it? Can I do um, text, you know, text manipulation and, and, you know, extract, you know, data out of a CSV, for example? Like, are you able to do those types of tasks? And then furthermore, which is the higher level thinking, you know, are you able to put together a, a, a rough... A draft or first take at a solution. It might not be, you know, time or space complexity, like in terms of it being fast and not using a lot of memory, but you got something on the board. Are you able to do that? And are you able to explain it to the interviewer? Are you able to choose data structures that are reasonable for the problem space? So those are the types of things that the coding interview is going to look for more than being in a three ring circus and having someone you know do do the whip and you're writing you know stuff on the board <laughs> like something out of a far side cartoon i think that was actually in a far side cartoon it um, probably was yeah <laughs> right it's not it, it shouldn't be like the far side cartoon folks that's that's not that's not how it should be but all of that being said um coding interviews live coding interviews marker board or with coderpad can be very stressful emotionally for people there are people that are held back from joining big tech companies because they are terrified of the pressure that, that such an interview brings. So I, I know that some companies, which I think are pretty you know, enlightened, they're doing take-home. Mm. And I, I, I think that take-home questions can be very useful because it allows the candidate to show their best side. Like, I, I'm able to write tests, I'm able to write documentation. You have the time to do that rather than just thinking about putting together the solution in a 20 to 30-minute period of time. It's, it's less pressure. But there's, there's something you have to keep in mind if you are a manager and you're doing take-home coding questions. You need to strike a balance between two things. Number one, the question needs to be large enough that you're able to get enough signal from the submission to know, oh, okay, this person can code. They're thinking reasonably about the problem. They are able to, you know, this is a good example of what they would write if they were on the job. I like this, this is this is good signal. Um, but if you make the the problem too complicated, um, I think you're being disrespectful to the candidate's time. You don't want to give them a gigantic problem that takes, you know, many, many hours and up to a day for them to complete, because frankly, there are other, you don't want to give them something that feels like a consulting engagement. <laughs> yeah. Cause if so, I'm going to send you an invoice, you know, like, <laughs> right, right. Um, exactly. Right. So, so respect, respect the candidate's time, but give them enough so that you get a read on, on what they're about coding wise. But I, I think, I think that um, take home questions can be very useful, you know, to make a candidate feel comfortable. M-
1: multiple rounds of interviews. Is that normal as uh, for an SRE position?
2: Yes. Again, I'm speaking from from experience at Meta and also how I've driven the interview process when I was an SRE manager at Acquia. So you will, you will definitely have multiple rounds. They will consist of the following subjects. You will have a coding interview, of course. Actually, let's take a step back. Um, you'll have the screen first, and the screen will have two interviews. One will be the coding interview, which is 45 minutes long, um, usually two problems. And then you will have the systems interview, which they're asking you open questions about, you know, operating system concepts, basically the things I was mentioning earlier and seeing where you go. And sometimes they are scenarios. And sometimes they're like, open questions that they allow you to just ramble on and talk about what you know, and then they'll ask you clarifying questions. So that's the screen. So you're, you're putting in an hour and a half of investment at that point. Now, if they like you, and they want to do, you know, full interview round, Okay, so now you have several more. You'll do another coding. You'll do another systems. You'll do a systems design, which is like, okay, you're going to build Twitter. What infrastructure services would you use to compose Twitter? What's the database schema going to look like? You know, how would you build it? No public API. That's the first thing I do for sure. No API. <laughs> right. Yeah. There, there it is. Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's great signal. Um, but, you, <laughs> but you have, <laughs> but that's an interesting problem where you're thinking top level, like if I am going to architect a, a service, you know, how do I think about it and, and, and how do I make it scale? You have behavioral interviews. They're going to, you know, see what your personality is about and the way that you've handled past you know, instances at work, like how do you handle project work? How do you uh, communicate with others? How do you manage conflict? That sort of thing. And then also you may get interviewed on networking because at Meta, there were teams that were like, you know, edge network stuff. And they, you really need to know your network chops in order to participate on that team. Mm. So if you didn't necessarily do well on the, on the networking interview, it wouldn't disqualify you. It just means that you wouldn't join a team that really focuses on that competency, Right. But those, are the, those are the types of interviews you're going to get. It's like a full day. A
1: full day per interview or a series of interviews they just kind of hand you from uh, team to team?
2: The latter. You have a series of interviews in, in a single day and you even have lunch in the middle. Yeah. But that, again, that was my experience at Meta, right? I like their process because it was like a one and done thing. They flew you out, you were there, you did all of it, and then you went home and then they were able to gather the information they needed and then make a decision.
1: Networking you pulled out uniquely, which I thought was interesting, that that wouldn't get lumped in perhaps with operating system discussion?
2: Sure, there there, there, there could be systems questions where you are thinking about networking, but I think they're more concerned about the holistic view on how you would operate a system or holistic view of how you could manage, administer, troubleshoot, measure... Uh, a system as opposed to just networking. Networking is such an important part of a company like that, mm. that you do want specialists that are very, very good at just that practice. So they they interview for that purpose. I think given their space, it makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. When I've been in, in interviews and been on the candidate side of the table, I try to remind myself that I'm not only being interviewed, but to a certain degree, I'm also interviewing the company that's potentially going to hire me. And in the context of SRE, what sort of questions should I be asking the company about the role, about the position, et cetera? And are there any red flags that you would see that a company would say and go, oh, okay, I don't, maybe I don't want to work here?
2: So number one, when you're interviewing you know, with a company, ask them what the actual work responsibilities are. Get <laughs> in their words, what does the job actually entail? Because you can be in a situation where you're applying for a quote, site reliability engineer role, unquote. But what you actually are interviewing for is an operations role where Mm -hmm. they're not focusing on toil management through software engineering. You know, they're they're not necessarily doing SLOs or any of those SRE practices, right? And without those key tenets in place, like those key practices in place, you're not doing an SRE role. You're doing something else. So it's good to vet. That the job is in fact SRE. After that, yeah, there's a few other things. It might be good to ask them, hey, why are you doing SRE in the first place? Tell me in your words, like how, how, and why did you start the practice? And there could be a whole host of answers. It can be, oh, we've been launching a lot of products lately, and we noticed that we're always we're always tripping up on on launch readiness, so we wanted an SRE team to help with that. Or we had a you know we scaled and dealt with uh, operational pain points. We're dealing with a lot of toil, and manual manual work. Like at least then you you understand the mission and as to you know what you're signing up for. And again, like having some resilience as an SRE is important. Like you're going in there to do a job and solve a problem, but you should probably know what the terrain looks like. Um, similarly, ask about on call. How's on call been lately? Have there been, you know, really interesting or, or noteworthy incidents that you're free to talk about? And it's not just like, oh, I had a bunch of incidents, or oh, Pager Duty's on fire. It's not about that. I mean, it's it's a good piece of information, but what I'm really thinking about is their attitude towards unplanned working outages. Because if they're like, "Oh yeah, we had this really big outage, and you know we had to do a postmortem clue, and you know the outage was uh, for like three four hours, and that was really embarrassing," clue they actually measure the impact of the mm-hmm. incidents, right? So asking that question can give you some interesting pieces of data as to how they think about incidents, which is a very very important piece of the puzzle. Because if they're if they're complacent and you're not, you're going to be stuck with it. Mm. And then finally, this is a question that I personally use. Um, and I find it very interesting because I get to know the person very quickly. I always ask the interviewer, what keeps you up at night, mm. right? And sometimes the, the answers can can really surprise you. You know, you can you can have someone that's like, oh, I'm really focusing on this project because, you know, the this is the importance of the project or, oh, I'm focusing on my team. I'm concerned about, you know, team cohesion. They might even be really candid and say things to you that they wouldn't necessarily say in the team setting. You know, they may emotionally dump for just a brief moment, and you have a little interesting piece of information that you can think about when you're considering that offer, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So those are the questions I tend to use. Like, understand what is the actual scope of the work? Why are you here? Why does SRE exist? You know, what are what are the incidents that have been happening lately, and you know what's bothering them?
1: Going back to your point about on call, can I assume if I'm an SRE,
2: I'm in an on call rotation? That's part parcel of the job. Yes, at least that's my personal principle. Because the thing is. You are not going to be able. Let me take a step back, actually. Um, there are multiple ways that you can serve as an SRE in an organization. Most of the time during this chat, I've been alluding to the embedded engagement model where you are a member of the team. So you would not be embedding on a team and collaborating with the team unless you are on call for the service just as much as they are. Most teams, I think, are going to operate that way. And on that basis, yes, if you're an SRE, it is an on call type of affair. It is a privilege to be responsible for software that people depend on. That makes sense to me from this angle. If you build it,
1: you should be willing to care for the thing when it breaks. You're the one that, you know, designed it. You're putting it in place. You you make it run. And therefore, when it goes south, you're the one they should be calling because you're the one that should be troubleshooting what broke within your system so that then you're
2: motivated to build that system better and improve it so that you don't get called. Amen to that. If you build it, you run it. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise the feedback loop is broken. Mm-hmm. You can you can write code and not feel the pain that is a result of, of choices, of that you don't know the impact of that code to you, to your team, to your customers. On call is the way that you stay in touch with operational reality of the system. You know, even as a manager, I held on to the pager rotation and was a member of the pager rotation as long as was appropriate. Because I felt that strongly about it that I was going to do that even as a manager. Let's say I
1: get the job. Uh, I'm a new SRE. Uh, I've had lots of jobs over the years and uh, had different companies handle different ways. Some, there was kind of a gentle introduction and there's training and uh, you get to meet people and it's kind of the ease into it. Some, it's like, dude, we don't know what's going on, but pretty much everything's on fire. We're so glad you're here. And then you just kind of, you know, you just thrown into it like day one, you walk out of there Friday afternoon of your first week. Oh, I don't know what just happened. Is there any general expectation I can have of an SRE, whether it's going to be the former or the latter? Uh, I think it depends on the size of the company
2: and mm. how far, yeah. far along, you know, in their in their growth that they are. If you are at a startup or a small to medium sized company, there's going to be a lot of ambiguity and they're going to be very, very happy to see you. <laughs> um, right. That, that is a hundred percent true. So when I, when I started as an ops person at Acquia, like 2010, right. Hmm. Uh, they only had a tiny bit of documentation and there were engineering teams that were magically coming around and handing services to us. Now that there was a new engineer on the team, you know, in those situations, like you're going to have to take a look around and figure out you know which way is up and the low hanging fruit, and start you know producing impact that's going to help the team in the short term. Like you're going to have to think short term. What are the big wins that you can get right at your fingertips in the beginning? For smaller organizations, if you're lucky enough to get into a larger organization, like for Meta, they had this whole program called Bootcamp. You know, I joined and they gave me five weeks to go to class. Mm. I learned all about their technology and their tools and their processes and everything. And then you get to sit with engineering teams that you're interested in, and you get to see what they're about and do a few tasks for them to see, you know, is this, was this working out for me? Do I like it? And then you get to join the team. And from that point, the implicit expectation is that you have around up to six months to start getting fully productive because the context that you're learning is going to be pretty broad. Even if they have documentation, even if they have processes in place, that's still the expectation. So to sum up, the larger the organization is, Typically, if done well, the easier your ramp is. On smaller organizations, you expect for you to need to hit the ground running, figure out where the quick wins are, and start landing those.
0: All right. And I guess that's part of what you can ask up uh, during the interview process is, you know, what does your onboarding process look like? I want to tack that on and, and hopefully they're, they're honest and forthright about what that process actually looks like. Yeah,
2: agreed. And hopefully it's in their marketing materials for the recruiting team. Right, that would be that would be something to say, uh, <laughs> yeah. but no, that's a very good point.
0: We have had a wide-ranging conversation and, and covered a lot of ground. So maybe if you could just summarize a few key takeaways uh, for the listeners out there around what it means to be an, an SRE and how you might move into that role. I'll definitely do my best. So number one, if you want to become a site reliability
2: engineer, you're going to have to bite the bullet and learn how to code. No. That is number I I know. <laughs> I know it's really painful, but I I am telling you something. It, it is a superpower. If you learn how to code, it it allows you to remove years of manual labor from people's lives and it, it has a, an immense impact on other human beings. So learn learn the superpower. It's very good. Um the second bit is you need to be in touch with yourself and your emotions, your ability to communicate and relate to others. There probably aren't going to be a lot of SRE pundits, I guess, that are going to say that. Uh, but I think it's a very important focus to have because you are collaborating with other people, and you are trying to persuade them and introduce them to new ideas. So hmm. the more that you are adept at communicating with others, the better off you're going to be because you're not going to be able to do the mission yourself. That's the second bit. The final piece of advice or, or guidance that I have about getting into into SRE is you're definitely going to want to take some time and prepare for your interviews. You're going to be assessed across a broad range of dimensions. So make sure that you're spending the time and being prepared for the conversations and the types of interviews you're going to have. Those three things I think will prepare you to have a very successful interview process, join a good team, and have a fulfilling career
0: awesome. And I, I love that you emphasized a non-technical portion of the key takeaways because I think that's huge. And it's a mistake that people sometimes make skimping on that. I mean, if people want to hear more from you, and I, I think they might, where are some good places to find you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I I have a website that I post to every week for my consultancy. It's certomodo.io. That's C-E-R-T-O-M-O-D-O.io. I'm also on LinkedIn where I post often. Um, My profile name is Amin Astani, no spaces, all lowercase. I'm also on Twitter, uh, first initial, last name, Astani, but I don't post on there much, so maybe that's not the place (laughs) to be. But yeah, I'm looking for new clients, and uh, I'm eager to help tech teams transform themselves using DevOps and SRE.
0: Awesome. Well, I mean, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day Two Cloud. And hey, listeners, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows or guests that we should have on the show, let us know. You can find us on Twitter, which we don't check that often, but uh, Day Two Cloud shows the handle there. <laughs> or even better, go to our website, Day Two Cloud.io, and find the handy request form that is on the site. This show was about building yourself and your career, but you know what? You don't have to do that all by yourself. The Packet Pushers podcast network has a free Slack group open to everyone. You can visit packetpushers.net slash Slack and join. It's a marketing-free zone for engineers to chat, compare notes, tell war stories, and solve problems together. Packetpushers.net slash Slack. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.